Welcome to Murder on Silk Road, the podcast where we talk about European and Asian true crime cases. My name is Lina, and with me is my friend and co-host, Jules. Julia, please. (laughs) You guys don't know me well enough to call me by a nickname that nobody else calls me by. Um, Yeah, so this is a case episode where Lina's going to be telling us something, and she hinted last week already that... Um, this is going to be a tough one. Yeah. Um, so that's going to be fun. Mm-hmm. It's been a while. <laughs> it has, I guess. Yeah. So just be aware that there can be some triggering topics in these cases. Yes. And I guess Lena will be telling us now what's specifically included in this one that we need to be aware of. Well, I'm not going to get into any details, but a lot of murder... Oh, wow. That's a new one. Yes. And um, a lot of just very frustrating and cruel patriarchy. Oh, is that what kind of a case it is? It's that kind of story. Oh, great. I'm going to... I'm going to get heated. And religious extremism and just all the things that Julia's going to be very, very frustrated about. And she can't keep quiet. And she's going to have to say her opinion, which we appreciate, of course. (laughs) Um, and yeah okay if I get loud I'll just have to remember to go further from the mic yes (laughs) that would be very helpful I'll I'll try to remember that okay so it's more trigger Mm. warnings for me than for anybody else got it I think so got it got it got it (laughs) more trigger warning cool 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 yes um and it's probably gonna be a little long so should we just get right into it Yes, let's get right into it. Cool. Well, let me take you back to 2001. Ah. On a July day in Mashhad, Iran. In Iran? Iran, yes. So I'm going to do my best with the pronunciations as always, but some of them I don't know, well, how they're pronounced. So yeah, I'm sorry if it's wrong. But a 30-year-old Firuze, or Firuze, tells her daughters, 10-year-old Sahar and 8-year-old Sarah, or Sarah, that she is going out to buy some opium. Okay, opium, why? Yes, because she, well, I think she is an addict, but she might also sell some on the side. So it's like, hey kids, I'm just gonna go get my drugs, be right back. Yes, pretty much. Cool, cool, cool. cool. And so actually... A lot of the, um, the, I guess the, the facts I have here come from a documentary where the girls are actually interviewed. So you see them talking about this. Um, just really tiny girls really casually talking about their mother going out to buy opium like she's going to get soy sauce or something. Or bread, I guess. So <laughs> <is a> more <laughs> Rice. <laughs> more um, universal yeah item grocery item but but yeah so she does it regularly so that's nothing unusual and after a while she calls them back to say that she was on her way home now but before their mother can come back the girl's 15 year old brother comes home from his job as a cleaner in a refrigerator factory so he's 15 how old are the girls 10 and 8 okay and how old are they in the documentary? Um, I think 
They were ten and eight. It was seriously soon after. Oh yes. damn! Okay, I thought that would would have been like years later. Like they're older now. No, no, no. Oh damn! Okay. No, that's the thing. They're tiny, and um, maybe one year has passed, or maybe one of them had their birthdays or something. But in the documentary, they were actually introduced as ten and oh, eight. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. And their mother. Yes. Is was thirty. Okay. So, so the children waited together for their mother as it got later and later, but she never made it back home. So worried, the children asked their aunts and neighbors for help, but no one knew where Firuze went and when she would be back. Eight-year-old Sara knew where her mother would go buy opium, so she went there by herself, looking for witnesses who might know what happened to her mother. With the money she had on her, she would call home to see if her mother returned. And if not, she continued her search. So the ten-year-old is just going out alone, looking for her mother. This was the eight-year-old. The eight-year-old, even the eight-year-old. Yes. What the hell? Why isn't the brother going? So, I think they were all doing different things.、Um, the brother, along with the aunts, they were looking at, you know, I think calling hospitals or looking at different places where maybe something happened to her, and I'm. Assuming that maybe the ten-year-old was staying home to just in case you know the mom came Why back. Why not have But, the eight-year-old stay home, <laughs> or have? The- I don't think it made a huge difference. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's pretty crazy. It's just I think we'll see you know throughout this whole story how different. I mean, it's two thousand one. It's it's you know not like ages ago. But it's such a different world, and technically it is ages ago. That's why I think it's so I mean, shocking. About it. Yeah, come on, it's two decades, and you know, I I remember two thousand one pretty clearly. Well, I don't. I was three. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. No, but I was. What was I? I was six years old, I guess. So, anyway. Oh, so you、um, were already in school. Yeah, I was. I think I was already in. I already finished yeah, first grade. Yeah, you're probably in second.、Point. Actually, yeah. So similar aged, just a little younger than the girls here. Right.、Um, Hiruze's children and sisters looked for her for five days. Whoa. Until they eventually found her body in the mortuary. Oh. They then wa- washed her body and then buried her. And did they find any clues over those five days? Um, I'm not really sure. I just know that they found her after five days. And it was apparent that she was strangled to death, and she would later be confirmed to be the fourteenth victim of an active serial killer in the city, Whoa. known as the Spider Killer, the sp- who specifically targeted sex workers who were usually also drug addicts. So, was she a sex worker, or was it just like, oh, she's buying drugs? She probably fits like my type. Let me just attack her. I mean, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think because there were so many victims, and I don't know which one was which, but I think most of them were both. But what about Fiduze? I'm not sure, but I think they were the victims were all sex workers. Okay, but you don't. Know I mean, for so、sure. the thing like- is, for the victims, most of them were have been arrested, either for a sex work or. Um, drugs, but I'm not sure which one she was arrested for. But she had been arrested. If that makes sense. 
but she had been arrested for either one of okay, those. Okay, okay, okay. But most likely, she was practicing both, okay. as were all the other victims. Yeah. Got it. You can, I mean, you can she continue. Pro- she probably was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So the story takes place in Mashhad. Do you know anything about Mashhad or Iran? No, I really don't. Okay, let me tell you a bit about it then. Do that, please. Yes. Educate Uh, my unknowing ass. (laughs) I mean, I don't know a lot either, but after doing a little bit of research, I found out that... You know more than me, no. Yes. Mashhad is the second most populous city in Iran, and it's located in the northeastern part of Iran, and it's the holiest city because uh, it houses the shrine of the 8th Shia Imam, Mm-mm. Imam Reza. So, uh, so basically, there's you know the Shiite Muslims and the Sunni Muslims. Yeah. And Iran has the majority of uh, the Muslims in Iran are Shia mm-hmm. or Shiite Muslims, and they believe in, or, well, one of the branches, the main branches in Iran, they believe in these twelve divinely ordained leaders mm-hmm. who are also the descendants of the prophet Muhammad. Mm-hmm. And one of them, the eighth one, was Imam Reza. And the city is actually named after him because it is where he died. And Mashhad means the place of martyrdom. I hate this word. It's oh, correct. Martyrdom, yeah. right? Yeah. I never know if I pronounce it right. It's such a weird word, but yeah, it's correct. Okay, thanks. Yeah, so that's Mashhad. And so it's it's the holiest city in the city in the country, and despite it being 900 kilometers away from the capital city Tehran, millions of pilgrims visit Mashhad each year to basically visit the shrine. Pilgrimage, so, sort of thing. Pilgrimage, yeah, yeah. So, um, in the past, ancient past, it also used to be an important stop along the Silk Road. So, ah, fun appropriate fact. for this podcast. <laughs> Um, And nowadays, it's not only a popular tourist destination for religious pilgrims, it's also on another more modern trade route, bringing drugs, specifically opium, from Afghanistan to Europe and North America. Oh, fun. Yeah, so that's why the city has seen an increase in drug use and just growth of the legal sex industry due to urbanization combined with poverty and unemployment. And, of course, drug addiction as well. Right, of course. Yeah, so sex work is illegal in Iran, and if arrested, it's punishable by fines, imprisonment, lashing, and even death if the sex worker, who's usually a woman, is married. Oh, because it's like you're being unfaithful to your husband as well. You're not yeah. just doing something that's illegal, but you're being unfaithful. Great, 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 mm-hmm. great, great. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Speaking of, you never mentioned, is the father in the picture? Uh, no, he is not. Okay. No, but the kids do live with their... Well, at, at the point of the documentary, they lived with their aunts or one of their aunts. So not with their father. Okay. Mm. Um. So is this serial killer i mean you'll probably get into it but is this sort of like a i target the people that i think are like doing wrong in the eyes of god like they're doing sex work and 
I'm gonna kill them because it's not right sort of thing. Like I yes. am so like vigilante justice. This is my justice on, yes. kind of. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the most when, frustrating kind. So I mean I'm saying yes because I am spot on. Yes. But I'm not <laughs> no. saying yes for the reasoning behind that and obviously yeah. just yeah. Mm. It's just my my all that true crime knowledge is finally coming to use. Your instincts. <laughs> my my instincts. Okay, yeah. well, that really frustrates me. Okay. I know. Good, it's going to get worse. But... Good to know where we're starting from. <laughs> yeah, Continue, just a little please. hint. Yes, so I'm actually going to tell you who our murderer is right now. Oh, right now. Cool. Right now, yes, because there's not a lot of information about the investigations or you know the specifics of each crime it's pretty much the same mo repeated 16 times great so yeah i'll we'll just get to the guy behind all the crimes and a bit about his background and leading up to the murders okay tell me so his name is saeed hanai and he was born in a working-class family in Mashhad in 1962. And How like the vast old is majority, he then in 2001? Uh, he was 39, turning 40, I think, when all this was happening. So okay. maybe, I think, later on, yeah, 39, 40, something like that. Okay. Uh, yeah. So like the vast majority of Iranians, they were Shia Muslims. However, unlike most modern Iranians, they were traditionalists or sort of fundamentalists who interpreted mm. the Quran literally. Oh, great. So things like stoning your wife for some perceived <laughs> slight and... Yeah, I mean, in that direction, for sure. There okay, was a I'm not going to by... pretend to really know what the Quran yeah. says, but I have thoughts. <laughs> or, yeah, I think, yeah. Um, I mean, so the thing is, with any religious text, you have to look at the context, I think. And yeah. what a lot of extremists do, they take out just certain verses from the Quran or the Bible, whatever, and, you know, reference and say, look, this is what it says. So this is God's will. But it usually has some context behind it that makes it more reasonable, if that makes sense. And either way... I, don't, also, I didn't read the Quran either, so I don't know. Also, those but, standards yeah. don't apply in modern society. We have different standards of living, different like values and morals. We view the genders differently. So it's, it's just yeah. it's not appropriate to one-to-one -one sort of apply it in the world as it is today. And what you... Like, what also needs to be considered that a lot of people that adhere to this sort of, this is literally what it says, and so mm -hmm. what you're doing is wrong in the eyes of God or Allah, uh, is that these things had to be translated. And language is such a changing thing. Like, it's so variable mm -hmm. through time that things can be so misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not really going to be getting into any verses or anything. There are some concepts I will discuss very briefly. It's probably um, best that we relate don't to this case. get super Yeah, I mean, it. there's a lot to unpack already. <laughs> and with this case also, it's 
I mean, it's a bit early to be talking about this, but basically, um, just because you are a fundamentalist, re- fundamentalist religious person, doesn't mean you, you know, your 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 beliefs are so extreme that you think it's justified to kill people. Yeah, it's just that's that this extremism. Guy, it's not necessarily fundamentalism, but yeah, it's yeah. often and, that extremism mm. comes from fundamentalism. Yeah, but like in this case. It's also the fact that this guy was an extreme narcissist, probably a psychopath, or basically he was he was a killer who used religion as an excuse. And it doesn't really matter what religion he was born in, I think. Either way, he used it as justification for what he enjoyed, which was power. Right. Mm. Anyway, let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, yes. So, Saeed, I have a lot of quotes from him because the documentary interviews him. him. Oh, great. I don't like that. Yeah, but it does... (laughs) They don't just interview him. They interview a lot of people and give sort of all sides of the stories, except for the victims, of course. But we do have the victims' families speaking in the documentaries. But anyway, a lot of what I will tell you are direct quotes from him. So I really don't like that, but it gives us very good insight at least. So go Yes, ahead. it does. <laughs> it does. Um, so Saeed, he proudly recalls that he had never talked to a woman who was not a family member before he was married. And he also mentioned that he never had a friend and he was always embarrassed to talk to women or girls. So his upbringing was really influenced by religion. And ever since he was a child, he believed that he was blessed by God's love. Because hmm. he wrote in a diary entry that he was, he grew up and was, so as he was growing up, he was always in a lot of accidents because he was quite a rash person. But God always saved him from getting hurt and helped him whenever he wanted something or needed something. He felt like, you know, God was always there on his side. So he thought he was special and, yeah, blessed. Right. Basically, setting up a foundation of. Um, what I will be doing in the future is justified in the eyes of God. Because look Mm -hmm. at how he favors me. So obviously, yeah. Yeah, so he did have quite a complex, a God complex. But um, literally and figuratively. (laughs) Yeah. So he also grew up in an abusive environment. His mother, Malike, was abusive to him and his many siblings. Um, Just from what They said in the documentaries, in the interviews, I think he had at least five brothers and at least one sister. Could be more, but many siblings. And when asked about whether she beat her children, his mother smiled and said, Of course I would. My children say my fingernail scratches are still on their bodies. Oh, I'm so proud. Wow. (laughs) So... Yeah, Wait, so, so they interviewed her as well? They interviewed a lot of people. They interviewed Holy so shit. his mother, his brother, his wife, his son, and just um, locals in the area. Yeah, and victims' families, the judge. So it, it was a lot. And him, of course. But I highly recommend it if you're interested in this case, because I'm not going to quote the whole thing. But it was just... <laughs> each Each statement was so just baffling sometimes or just heartbreaking but yeah um but apparently 
Oh, apparently his mom also bit them. Or, what? So, yeah, like she she would scratch them, bite them, and all that. What is but she a feral of, cat? I don't know. Why don't know. bite? It's, I guess because it hurts. Yeah, but lots of other <laughs> things hurt. Why bite? That's just I mean weird. Okay. I feel like that would inflict the most pain. Okay, well maybe let's not get into this discussion <laughs> yeah. but it's just weird let's just yeah, say that. it is no it, it is very weird um but Said he rationalized the beatings as necessary in his religious growth and that he believed that his mother was carrying out god's will to make him a better muslim okay hmm. no comment no comment i mean there's a lot of psychology behind it i think and yeah, there's actually probably. um a serial episode you know the yeah. Whatchamacallit. It was a podcast serial. Or yeah. is it serial? Wait, the Whatchamacallit. Just... <laughs> Wait. I want to make sure I get the name right. Because serial killers. They have an episode called The Spider, Said Hanai. And they actually go a bit into the psychology. But I'm not going to get into that because okay, I'm not qualified. Cool. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not qualified. Uh, so, anyway, that was his childhood. So, no woman except for family and kind of strict abusive parent and i guess a mother figure who was like that so that yeah. might influence his yeah. view on women but anyway um so iran was in a lot of political unrest during the time so in the 70s uh a lot happened let me do an extremely simple <laughs> explanation of a very complex time period in yeah. politics and history so when he was born, the current government didn't exist yet. It was a monarchy that was in place by the reigning Pahlavi dynasty at the time. And you might think, oh, monarchy dynasty sounds kind of, you know, um, backwards or, yeah, not modern. But actually, this government had been rolling out a lot of major reforms to modernize the country. Mm. So let me just tell you some of the reforms um, they had they did land reforms to redistribute wealth and eliminate feudalism. They gave women the right to vote. Cool. They nationalized forests, water resources. They created a system for social security, national insurance, and also you know tried to offer free food for all mothers and babies, etc. Like there was a lot of reform in a long period of time. That sounds amazing. And what happened? What happened? So I. I'm not going to get into it because I don't know. There was a, there were a lot of problems with the reforms, though. And I think some of the land reforms, which were the main thing they were doing, had problems eventually. Uh, but I'm not e equipped to explain all that. But basically, the people revolted. And then what's known as the Islamic Revolution happened. Right, and it led that. to the creation of today's Islamic Republic of Iran in 1979. So... Said, he was 17 years old at the time, and he was really excited about the new government because it was the Islamic Republic, right? So mm -hmm. it reinstated a lot of the Islamic laws that the previous government got rid of. So one thing, interestingly, that they also got rid of, but this was like way earlier, um, I think already back in the 40s to 60s, they had a mandate or they banned the hijab, basically, for women. The old banned government. Banned it, okay. 
they banned it yeah i think later on because people were like what the fuck we want you know the choice to practice our religion so they kind of gave people more freedom again and they could just people could choose so it was you know but they recommended people to be more westernized and dress like westerners but um anyway when the islamic republic was rein or was created they actually uh created a hijab mandate for women so the exact mm-hmm. opposite <laughs> so right. now everybody had to wear a hijab uh so before the government could really do a lot um the, their neighbor Iraq led by Saddam Hussein invaded Iran oh yeah so it kicked off the Iran Iraq war which oh. would last for eight years And we won't be getting into that either. But the reason I'm telling you this is because Said, you know, he believed he was destined for greatness, for glory. So he volunteered to fight in the front lines. Of course. Oh, mm. of course. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yes. And it was at this war where Said discovered his fascination with killing. Ah, oh, yeah. great. So <laughs> Said, he would, he would later say that he often thought about the people he killed and the moments where they died and it made him feel powerful so even though murder is a major sin in islam this was war so it was justified and it also allowed him to experience his power trip guilt free mm. yeah so eight years later he returns to society because the war has ended and at this point he was 26 years old and Back home in Mashhad, his family thinks it's time for him to get married. Of course. Yeah, so his family arranges a marriage for him. He's introduced to Fatime, a daughter of a family friend, and the two get along pretty well. And they end up getting married. So Said, he's very happy about Fatime because she was way better than what he had imagined his wife would be. And the couple first have a son and then two daughters. So Fatime, she describes Said as somewhat, well, she says adventurous, but I think it's more like takes risks, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Prone to take risks. And because the example she gave was that he liked driving fast. <laughs> so I'm not yeah, sure that's adventurous, okay. but um, yeah. No, yeah. More, more risk taking. I, yeah. Yeah. And he, she also mentioned that he was very keen on sort of maintaining the hijab rules. So, for example, she said, if my headscarf kind of slipped a little bit, he would say, cover up. Oh, great. Yeah. But he was also just very diligent and in, in pious in his prayers and also fasting. And when he came back from the war, after he started his family, he also starts working as a building contractor and life kind of becomes normal. But Saeed always felt like something was missing because he wow. still felt like he was the special chosen person by god and there was more for him to do makes sense like he got this feeling for power mm-hmm. like this uh he got to really live out his fantasies and then it got taken away from mm-hmm. him so of course he's like i need that back yeah he he was basically addicted to the power so the war was over but for him the battle was not yes of course his battle is starting No, yeah. So he he is constantly in this sort of living in his fantasy, basically. Mm, yeah, yeah. So anyway, 
back in Mashhad, he was very discontent with the modernization that was happening. So in a diary entry, he writes, The end of the Iran-Iraq war in 1988 was the start of deviating from principles which should be respected in a Muslim society. After the war, the Islamic Republic changed. Little by little, we saw a woman's hair coming out of the front of their scarves, and then their hair came out from the back of their scarves. It was as if they intentionally tried to mock the prophet and the martyrs, and no one could tell these women anything. I noticed that the situation was grave, so I decided to do something. Mm, of course, so who else is going to do something, if not him? <laughs> yeah. That's what he was born to do. That's what... That's why God made him survive all those accidents and the war. So he really yeah. just, he believed in that. Um, so at the same time, there were m more women coming from rural areas to the city. And they, because just of the poverty, the unemployment going on. And oftentimes, I think the women also, um, like all they could do was be married to someone, right? So if the marriage didn't work out. They were, they didn't have a lot of choice. If they wanted to survive, they had to become sex workers. So even though it was illegal, it was very lucrative and it was a thriving industry. I'm not sure how much you get for $5, but I think you they would charge around $5. And if they just went outside, stood by the streets for five minutes, they would have a client. Seriously? Yeah. Whoa, okay. Yeah. Basically, after the war... People were starting to kind of want more democratic freedom because even though the Islamic revolution took place and then the uh, the authority was very religious, the majority of the people actually wanted freedom. Well, because they got so, kind of used to it with some of the reforms, I'm guessing, from the monarchy. Yeah, yeah. Even and if they I didn't think, agree with everything. Mm, and I think... They didn't realize that if the the new government would be so strict religiously. But anyway, I'm I'm not sure and we're not gonna talk get into nah. that here. Nah, that's yeah, not. But basically, um there was a new president elected who campaigned for greater freedoms and yeah, they were hoping for change towards just more democracy. But unfortunately, high unemployment remained and poverty was still all over the country but of course Said was not happy with this new president because he felt like we're going the wrong direction again and it's just gonna get worse so yeah he was just very unsatisfied dissatisfied uh so then something happened that triggered his I guess it triggered him to take actual action so one day, he sees his wife come home and she looks visibly upset. And after asking her about it, she, she didn't really want to tell him because she knew he was really sensitive about these things. And it just goes to show that she knows, like, he's... <laughs> he there's is, something wrong. There's something wrong, or yeah. But she was like, ah, oh, it's all right, it's all right. But then eventually, um, he gets the story out of her. So she was at this kind of like a parent-teacher conference thing at the school of their children. And I think when she came back, she was getting a taxi or she was looking for a taxi, but then a taxi driver thought she was a sex worker. 
So there was just this whole kind of misunderstanding. And I guess confrontation where she felt horrible because, you know, being super religious and seeing sex work as this huge sin, she was appalled that she was mistaken as a sex worker. Right. And I think the taxi driver was also really just nasty (laughs) about it all. But either way, it was a bad experience. And when Saeed heard about it, he was pissed. So I think first he went to the police station, filed a complaint, but they didn't know who the driver was, of course, and they didn't have any evidence um, and couldn't prove any of the details or who this even was. So the case wasn't really taken seriously. So he was really upset about that. And then he decided he was going to kill taxi drivers. Oh, <laughs> He was okay. like, this, I cannot forgive this. I'm going to have to do some kind of revenge. But then after a while, he thought, ah, it's not really realistic. And I would have to kill too many of them. Yeah, it's not going to work. So then he changed his mind. And he did something else. I'm not really sure if this was before the whole taxi thing, if he already did this. But later on, it was, they found out that he forged a, an ID for being a moral police. I'm not sure if you've heard of these moral police morality uh, police things no, in I don't Iran. Think I have. I'll get into these a bit more in our in-between actually. Okay. So we're not going to talk too much about it here, but basically they kind of go around the city looking for people who are b- being immoral, I guess, breaking I'm not even like sure if it's actual law. law. So for example, something he would do, he would um, kind of see unmarried couples in public. Or if he sees women who are not properly covered, he would kind of report them to the police. Or he would he would say, oh, this is, you know, you should be doing blah, blah, blah. You should cover yourself up. Or you guys cannot do this in public. Just being, just being annoying and harassing people. Being that guy. Yeah. But that's an actual thing. Like the morality police. Uh, so, but he forged an ID for it and pretended to be one. And he reported um, people to the police. But then he saw that they were released from the police station and not really, you know, questioned. There weren't any consequences for them, really. He felt really angry and hateful. And I think that's also one of the reasons he thought, I have to take matters into my own hands. But he wanted to. Like it's, Of course, he was, was going to take anything as reason. Yeah, and it took everything very personal. Of course. <laughs> so after that, he... You know, he kind of thought about, okay, sex work, that's the problem here in our city. I'm going to have to eradicate that. So the first thing he thought was he was going to find the clients, the men who were soliciting sex, and kind of get his revenge uh, by doing something to them. So a journalist who interviewed him in the documentary um, says that all of this was in his own mind. It was all his delusions, basically. So yeah. he would see people standing on the road, like a woman would be standing by the road, and he would think, oh, she's a sex worker. And then if a man approaches her, and he would just think, oh, that's, that must be her client. So, you Without know, he's just really going around checking. accusing people. Yeah, yeah, and it just, just living in his own little world where he's this super v- cool vigilante and finding people who are morally corrupt and enacting revenge or justice 
Um, but his plan failed miserably because the men would either just outrun him or they beat him up instead. <laughs> yeah. Nice. I mean, nice, but also, oh, so that's why he's like, I'm gonna just put my target on the people that are yeah. vulnerable that can't fight me off or exactly escape me. Exactly. Oh, great. Yeah, but so, also hilarious that he got beat up. Yeah, and I think it really hurt his ego that he of was. Of course, because in the war, he—I mean, he survived the war. He felt like he was this—he's a war veteran, killed a lot of people, but he didn't have a gun anymore, and just by brute strength, he was not strong enough to assert his masculinity, his power. Um. So yes, that's when he directed his attention to the actual sex workers. Um, on August 7, 2000, Saeed approached his first victim, 30-year-old Afsaneh. Afsaneh had a 9-year-old daughter, and that's all I know about her, unfortunately. But Saeed's MO was pretty much pretending to be a client, so he would go to the areas, he would scout out um, the sex workers, and then when he feels like, okay, right now is a good chance, he's pretty much just hunting. He's a predator hunting the grounds. And then when he saw an opportunity, he would go to approach them and then haggle for a price. And then they would ask, you know, once they decided on a price, they would, oh, do you have a place we can go to? And then he would take them back to his home. To his actual home? So that's what he, to his actual home, yes. So the thing is, so he usually did his routine around 5 or 6 p.m. That's when, uh, or I think around 5 or at 5 o'clock is when they have this evening call to prayer. Yeah. So he would, you know, make sure everybody's praying and then he will go do his thing. And the thing is, his family, they would, I think they had these prayer classes or religious sessions at his father-in-law's place. So he would bring his family to his father-in-law's place and then pick them up afterwards whenever he was done. He would always say, oh yeah, you guys go there and then he's going to be busy doing some other stuff like taking care of his car or whatever. Just random excuses. Guys, actually, you he wouldn't was, understand. Yeah, pretty much. Whenever she asked him, she did ask him about things like, why are you here so late? Or where have you been? And he would just say, uh, just bring my bike there, my bike, motorbike or whatever, or uh, moving the car to that place or fixing it. And if she asked too much, he was like, why are you asking so much? <laughs> Basically, mm. just really, really, yeah. She had good instincts, though. I mean, it doesn't really help because yeah. you'll see. But anyway, uh, where were we? Yeah, so um, he approached Afsane, his first victim. And I quote from his from the interview, Saeed says, uh, She was looking at my wife's ceramic flowers on the walls. I grabbed her from behind and tripped her. She fell down. I put my left knee on her back and strangled her. I then flipped her and tightly wrapped her scarf around her neck. I wanted to bury her in the backyard. I then decided to wrap her in a carpet, put her behind my motorbike and take her out of town. So Saeed's wife actually noticed the carpet going missing. 
And he, mm. she asked him about it and he just said, oh, it's at my workplace. And when um, she asked him to, you know, bring it back, he never brought it back, basically. <laughs> and yeah, she later found out that it was, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if it's this one, but I think this was the only time he wrapped a body in the carpet. Later on, he would um, change his MO up sometimes and wrap them in different things. But I think the majority of the time, he wrapped them in the clothes they were wearing. So he would strangle them with the, their headscarves and then wrap their bodies with, in the kind of the black attire they're wearing to cover their bodies up. In Iran, it's called the chador, I think. But do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, kind I, know of, what I, I know what you're talking about. Mm. Yeah, just black veil, basically. But in Iran, they don't cover up the, the nose and the mouth. They still show the whole face. Okay, and that yeah. was enough to wrap them in? Yeah, I mean, it was. they were wrapped in these veils anyway. Like, they were covering their whole bodies up from head to toe. He basically did all of this when everyone was praying and he would just dump the body somewhere and he wanted them to be found. So it wasn't like he was hiding them. He wanted people to see what he was doing. Because so to him really it was justice. Bother. Yeah, yeah. He wanted to, see, to say, look, these morally incorrupt women, um, I'm taking care of them. Corrupt. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> these morally corrupt women are being served, quote-unquote, justice. And he wanted to be praised for what he was doing. And did he get that? He did get praise. Not from everyone, but from Fuck a that. minority, he did get praise. But Why did I ask? Yeah. yeah, so I'm not going to get into too much details anymore about the murders. But basically... Um, he committed, so the first one on August 7, that was Afsane, and then on August 10 and 11, two more sex workers were found strangled, and their names were Laila and Fariba. So he was doing this in a very short time span. Yeah, it's kind of, um, sort of bit by bit, so he murdered these three women on the 7th, 10th, and the 11th, or just around that time period. And after the third killing, he would later tell the court, um, he actually waited for the police to come and even help them load the, the body into an ambulance. Like what? he really wanted to know how people reacted to his murders. Right. I mean, you see that a lot with the perpetrators getting involved in yeah. the investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh. Yeah, so, and then there was a period of silence for a while, and yeah, he did say, I'm not sure if it's true, but he did say at some point, um, I was, I had doubts after killing three women, like whether what he was oh, doing was right. Oh, after three? Yeah, after three. Oh, not but after the said, first one. No, that one was fine. It was after three where he was like, after three, mm, yeah. let me think about this again. Yeah, he wasn't sure anymore, but then after seeing that the public paid a lot of attention to their oh, killings... Oh, he's like, I can get the attention I crave. Yeah, pretty much. He felt like, you know what? This is worth it. I'm going to keep going. So he continued his killing spree in 
January uh, 2001, so the next year, he murdered a woman named Masume on January 3rd. And then on February 16th, um, he killed Sara Ramani and February 29th, 45-year-old Azam Abdi. So I actually have a little bit of information about Azam because her father appeared in the documentary as well. And he kind of gave a background of her life. And it's just extremely heartbreaking. So Azam, she was very young when her family gave her to some relatives for gave marriage. Her? She was 10, 10 years old. Jesus. Yeah. So the thing is, I don't think she was married yet at 10, but they basically... But that's um, kind of like grooming, you know? At, if, yeah. if it's that young, yeah. it's basically grooming that child. And they're like treated like cattle. I mean, it's you, you're a kid. You don't know anything yet. And you're just being sent to this other family. And they wanted to raise her like among themselves. So she would be one of them and then marry one of their sons, basically. Ugh. And okay. yeah. So after 10 years, when she was 20 years old, and having six kids with her husband Jeez. by 20. Um, the husband took a second wife uh -huh. and didn't pay her any attention anymore. And eventually, like, the husband wouldn't give her any money. And so the father was like, what could she do? She had three girls and three boys. Right. And she had to take care of them by herself. Oh, gosh. So, I mean, I don't know if this was the life of all of these women, but... But yeah, this is just like a snapshot of how their lives were like in this society, this patriarchy they were in and just not having any choice. And once you are in that life, there was just no way of getting out. That's horrible. Up until Azam's murder, people didn't really think that this was a serial killer yet previously because I think just of the time skip and also the woman being found in different wrapped in different things and I think they also had there were also other murders that took place which were not related to Said. so people just thought it was random they didn't really care nobody cared about these women so yeah it was just life it's went on always these vulnerable like living high-risk lifestyle victims that mm. get ignored that allows these fucked up murderers to go on for as long as they do like if you just yeah if you put more resources to this case earlier like then just so many lives could have been saved but they're like and eh, these people deserve it anyway mm. for the life that they lead yeah and it's, it's not so fucked up it's not even like it's it's even worse in this case when i tell you more about people's opinions and all that later on but but it's the same same idea, like, with so many other women in all countries. But, yeah, anyway, uh, let's keep going. So on March 19th, so he's really keeping it up now, like, every other, every few weeks, uh, there's a new body found. So on March 19th, they found 50-year-old Sakine, 
And then on March 23rd, Khadija was found. So then I think around this time is when parliament in the capital in Tehran, they ordered an inquiry and summoned sort of the um, the minister in charge for questioning because they know like people were noticing that there was a pattern going on. There was a serial killer afoot and nobody was really taking care of it. Mm-hmm. And so the parla- parliament was actually thinking, oh, guys, you guys have to, you know, we're not happy with what you're doing. And on April 1st, they replaced the investi- like the investigators in Mashhad with a special squad from the capital, from Tehran. That's something. That's good. Yeah, that I is hope. definitely something. Yeah, so the thing is, I the, the dates I'm giving you and the names of the victims are from Wikipedia, but the timeline is a little bit sort of, if I look at some other sources, some other articles, they don't match up quite exactly. Mm-hmm. And I also don't, didn't find the mother of Sahar and Sarah's name on Wikipedia. Maybe they just list like a different name, like her last name or something. I'm not really sure, but um, so yeah, that's why I, I'm not sure why, but Wikipedia doesn't really have her name on it, but she definitely was one of the victims. But yeah, I'll, I will read out these names that are on Wikipedia, but just a disclaimer, I guess. So after this special squad was formed, they feel like it kind of seemed like um, Saeed was reacting to it because within two weeks, he killed three more sex workers. Whoa. And I mean, it took place within the span of four days. So on April 12th, um, the body of Marzi was found. Then on April 14th, they found Mariam. On April 15th, another woman named Tuba was found. And it was around this time when the name for these murders was coined. So the spider killings. Where does the name come from? I will let you know. So because I have an article where they where they interviewed the journalist who came up with this name. So actually, actually I should tell you his name before. Because he was complaining in the article that nobody um, gave him credit. So <laughs> let, me, let me give him credit. Uh, okay. All right. His name, I think, is Sayed Khalil Sajadpur. And okay. he was a reporter, a veteran reporter who really like followed the events that took place from the first days of the murder. So from the earliest in 2000? Yes. And I think his newspaper or maybe the location he's from is Khorasan. I think Khorasan is a place, but it might also be the name of the newspaper he was working for. But don't quote me on that. But basically, he was writing and like I think for that newspaper and he came up with the name and the reason so he actually had a bunch of names and spider killings was one of them because it felt like the the killer was trapping his victims like he had the spider web and then he would trap them lure them into you know thinking they were safe and then when he dumped the bodies they were also wrapped so it kind of felt like you know a spider sort of mm. wrapping the prey in this cocoon thing yeah yeah so that's why and he basically put up 
sort of a bunch of he made a list of different names and then his colleagues voted <laughs> and spider killings got the majority so that's why that's why we have the name interesting yes i so, didn't think that they mm-hmm. did stuff like that for uh the names of serial killers i feel like there should be higher priorities <laughs> but yeah no but i think sure. the reason he did coin the name was also just so that people could I mean, just to make it catchier and people pay more attention to it. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, um, so he also writes that after this name was coined, uh, this this name was created, there was just this atmosphere of terror throughout the city and the people, like the women, they still had to go out and earn a living, but they were now just scared and were, yeah, on their guards. Um, But still... After that, on April 24th, uh, they found the body of Azra. And then there was a little break. On July 3rd, the body of Mariam, another Mariam, was found, along with two other women named Shiva and Zara. But I'm not sure if um, they ended up being counted as Saeed's victims because... So the, the thing is, they found a total of 19 bodies... But he only confessed to 16. And him being the per- person who was really proud of his killings, it would be weird for him to, I don't know, maybe not confess to some of them, even though he, yeah, he felt like he did the right thing. So... And also, I mean, he was... He dumped them all in different places, right? Yeah. So, different yeah, it doesn't make sense for him to change that up that one time and mm. dump like multiple in the same location yeah that's why i'm not, i don't know i don't have enough information i think if you can read farsi you'll probably know this or find information <laughs> on course. this but i i couldn't so <laughs> but um anyway on july 11th they found another woman called Layla or lila on july 24th they found Mabube, she was only 18. I think she might have been the youngest victim. Oh, wow, that's so young. Yeah, and then in August, they found the final victim, uh, Zara. I think it's another Zara. But so, as I mentioned, this list did not contain Firuze's name. Mm. So I'm not really sure. But she is supposed to be the uh, 14th victim. Out of 16? He confessed to 16. Yeah. Okay. So that was the list of the victims. And I'm not going to go into detail about... Like, I have quotes from him where he talked about just really tasteless, tastelessly how he killed them or, like, how he would make sure they were dead. Like, whatever. We don't need... Yeah, no, definitely not. No. I mean, it's just to kind of show that how he didn't view them as humans. Like, the... So at one point after he describes that, the cameraman was saying, um, you're talking to, about these women as if they were livestock, sheep, or chicken. And he kind of just nods and laughs affirmatively. That's disgusting. And then the cameraman's like, do you see a difference between them and livestock? And he's like, no, they were not human beings to me. I'd feel sorrier for an animal. God, that's... I could vomit. Yeah. So just... It's, it's so absurd. Like, if you look at the documentary and see someone saying these things and... He completely believes in it. Like, I feel like so many people who say random 
um, just absurd, mean things online. They say it just for attention and to just get a reaction out of people. But he, he really believed in it. And that's what's so scary about him. But the thing is that um, they weren't even his actual victims at the beginning. Like he was, act- like he was going to go after, he was going to go after the taxi drivers. And when that he didn't find a way to do that, he decided, okay, I'll go after the men that want, like, want to get these like services instead of the sex workers. And so, to me, that means that this was just what he told himself to like justify it because he didn't think about it this way at the beginning or he would have targeted them immediately like this came with him like he just Mm. needed a quote-unquote like reason and he just with time like formulated it this way like it it has nothing to do with what he actually thinks it's just that he needs a way for to justify to himself how or like why he's doing these things yeah for sure i do think a lot of what he says we can't just you know believe or accept Mm. i think he's always trying to make him look justified like oh there was a reason i was doing this it's because they dishonored my wife their presence led to this incident so you know i i am justified to do what i'm doing they deserve what happened to them but yeah, he, he's just twisting everything so it fits his agenda, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically, yeah. Fitting um, it to his agenda. Yeah, so he actually, you know, he, again, his god complex. But he was saying, oh, after I killed 12 of them, there were, so the city was being plagued by a drought. And after he killed 12 of them, it started to rain. He was like, oh, god... <laughs> is looking favorably upon me. He's noticing my work. And he felt even more justified to do what he was doing. And he said he actually had 80 more sex workers on his list that he identified. But he did... Eight zero? Eight zero, yeah. But he couldn't (gasps) find, like, an excuse to make his wife leave to (laughs) basically, quote-unquote, do his work. So, I mean, so he's just, like, dumping his family somewhere and then, like, running off to do his thing well he wasn't just disappearing i think he would drop them off at his father-in-law's place and then drive off so he wasn't participating this with them but i'm not really sure about the intricacies of his arrangements with his family but he yeah i mean if it was up to him he wanted to do it every day because he said in the end that he couldn't sleep without killing someone and that he was addicted. What? And he also thought about being caught, you know, oh, stop before they catch you kind of thing. And he would think about his, his family and he would also drive to the prison sometimes and just wonder, oh, when am I going to get arrested? It, it's just really, he's just crazy. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, seriously crazy. So he also talked to these women when he got them into his house or in the car, he would ask them, you know, why are you doing this? Or how long do you still plan on doing this? And he would justify, basically, he would just say, oh, they they were drug addicts. They said that they were, they needed like a fix for their addiction. So 
they were not only selling drugs sometimes, they were also selling their bodies. So basically, oh, they were corrupt. Because they didn't have any other choice. Yeah. They deserved what happened to them. Ugh, what, just what a pig. Yeah, so anyway, let me get to the arrest and all that. Okay. So interestingly, at the time of when this was happening, there was a lot of political division within the country with people who were, who wanted more reform and others who wanted more, I guess, um, religious more, more um, restrictions? Stricter, yeah, basically, who were kind of on the side of Saeed, thinking that, you know, this is a sin, what these women are doing, so it's good someone is taking care of it because the government obviously isn't. Mm. So they were condemning that he was killing them, but he also they also didn't feel that sorry for them, I think. Yeah, there's that picking and choosing the bits mm. of your reli- of your religion to follow. Because, mm-hmm. like, yeah, he's killing, which is condemned, but also... Hmm? Yeah. <laughs> Look at who he's killing. It's fine. Mm-hmm. So there were quite a few, you know, conspiracies floating around as well, where people thought, oh, maybe this is a gang like a really um, fundamentalist religious gang that's doing this to kill these women because they were like, how is one person going to do all of that themselves? They thought, yeah, it was a group. But they didn't have a lot of leads and there was no evidence pointing towards a group. And also people were saying that if it really was that, then it's kind of contradictory because what the religious people or... I keep saying religious, they were all religious, but what the, I guess, more conservative fundamentalists, like their perspective was that, or they didn't really want to see that they had this issue because Mm -hmm. killing these sex workers would point to the fact that there was sort of the sex work problem going on in their society. Mm -hmm. And they felt like that was, like they didn't want to admit they had this problem. I think a lot of them believe that this was a thing that could only be rampant in secular societies. So that's why their society would be better because they don't have sins like this. But obviously this was a thing and they didn't want to admit it. So actually killing these sex workers would be admitting that they had a problem. So if that was their goal, it was kind of counterproductive. So Mm -hmm. that's why a lot of people were, or some um, investigators were also like, yeah, it's not really a religious group. It doesn't make sense. It's probably just one person. So they had theories, but eventually he was arrested on July 27th, 2001. So. Okay, how? I don't know. <laughs> oh, so that's just not known? Not exactly. Huh. He still killed someone on July 24th. That was the 18 year old. Mm-hmm. And then they found another body in August. And he got arrested on what day? July 27th. So three days after they found the body of the of the 18-year-old. Okay. Yeah, so I don't know exactly how he was arrested or the how the investigation took place. The police, they didn't really tell a lot. They didn't reveal very much. And different sources I, I had, they said different things. But I think it might be a combination of all of them. 
So these were the different reasons or methods I saw. So one okay. uh, source said that the police they hired a number of sex workers to catch the killer. Interesting. Whereas another source would say that they had underco undercover volunteers and not actual sex workers go out on the streets. And the estimate at that time was that there were around 5,000 sex workers in Mashhad. And the chances of Saeed approaching a volunteer was pretty low. Yeah. But yeah. I think the hope there was that maybe these volunteers will be able to find some information or if they, they might observe someone suspicious. So maybe like one theory is that a volunteer saw him, thought he was suspicious, and then um, they kind of pointed him out. And later on, officers remembered seeing this dude being weird at crime scenes. <laughs> so that might be how they kind of got caught on to him. Mm, okay. And finally, my favorite, um, favorite one was that he was arrested after he actually had his next victim. But that victim became suspicious and punched him and ran away. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So this might have also been a volunteer or one of the hired sex workers by the police. Like, who knows? But that's also been reported. And... Wait, I don't think she was hired by the police because um, according to that source, she didn't report the incident until a few days later because she was scared of what the police might do to her because, you know, it would be admitting her own illegal activities. But after overcoming right. that fear, she went to the police. Okay, well, I'm actually surprised that none of those theories of how he got arrested include him being like, Hey, it's me. I deserve that recognition. Yeah, no, it's not. Right. Well, I think you're right. It's probably a combination. Mm. Like, he wanted recognition, but he also wanted to keep doing it. Right? So... Yeah. Yeah. And there was actually... I forget which um, which murder it was, but at one of the crime scenes... So he would always hang around there, and he would actually approach the officers, or the, there was a judge who was investigating the cases... And Said would just talk to him and complain about sex workers in the city. He would be like, why aren't you guys doing anything about it? So maybe it really was like, this guy is at all of these crime scenes volunteering, quote unquote. Yeah. And he keeps seeing these things, we should look into him. Yeah, so that's very likely a combination of it all, I think. And he eventually stopped because the judge was like, dude, if you keep saying these things and being annoying you're going to become a suspect and then he was like okay okay <laughs> bye so yeah he he just very impulsive i bet that uh, i bet that impulsiveness bit him in the ass i think unfortunately because people didn't really pay much attention or they didn't care enough he was able to get away with so many murders mm. so when the police knocked on his door he opened and he was not violent or anything. He was a bit surprised, but not angry. And he didn't really resist the arrest. And actually, he was quite excited. Because he... <laughs> finally, the world was about to learn that he was the one behind the killings. Ah, oh, finally. The recognition finally. I deserve. Yeah, and so he was, you know, smiling and waving and just joking with people as he was being taken away by police officers. No. Yeah. And 
Um, later on, when he saw the journalists who interviewed him in the documentary, Roya Karimi, she would later say that, because she followed the whole case as well, and she mentioned that when Saeed saw his family again in the courtroom, he looked really proud of himself, like he just came back from a pilgrimage. And she said basically the way he looked at his family had reminded her of pilgrims who were returning home from Mecca, like they had this spiritual religious journey and Whoa. their status, like their religious status was elevated and they f felt proud of it. And he looked like that. No. Yeah. Um, I don't so like that. No. <laughs> no. So here's something I'm not 100% sure about, but I'm just going to believe the official reports. So before the arrest... The reports never mention anything about um, sexual assault or or intercourse in general. Um, mm -hmm. But then a few weeks after the arrest, he was charged with having improper relationships with the victims. So, yeah, I'm not sure if this was, you know, consensual because they thought they were with a client. Like he That's... wasn't... It's, I mean, it's it's all messed up, basically, but... It's messed up, and this is a weird, like, iffy gray area. Yeah, yeah. Because how much is it, like, yeah, they, like, this was their job, but they didn't, really, like, most of them don't really want to be doing that kind yeah, of work, exactly. and they didn't have like any they, choice. Yeah. So, anyway, he, um... I'm not so the thing is he claims that he was psychologically tortured until he gave these false confessions of adultery in mm -hmm. order for him to lose support like they really wanted him to not be a martyr uh like for these fundamentalists who supported him because he did have some support for sure and yeah. they wanted to kind of bring him down so they say that the officials or he he claims that the officials used this so that people would stop supporting him. Because if it's true, okay. then, yeah, they can't support him. So, yeah, I, I mean, I can believe that as well, to be honest. Because whatever I read, it wasn't really a, an official report. But just if he made this, these confessions, then, you know. Like, I didn't read that there was some kind of medical evidence showing they had intercourse with him. Except for the fact that, yeah, it just said it became clear that he um, not only had intercourse with the victims or 13 victims before killing them, but also had engaged the services of other sex workers. So, oh, outside yeah. of his holy mission. Yes, but I only saw this in one source. So I'm not sure how accurate it is, but honestly, I can see it happening but I wonder why he did not kill them in those cases. Yeah, that doesn't make sense to me. Mm. So who knows? Maybe he knew he didn't have much time to dispose of the body. So maybe he just didn't. Who knows? And I think if he really did have sex with them, he would never admit them outside of or the... Or it was setting up... Yeah. Like he would, he would, of course, say later on, oh, I was just lying because they gave... They were torturing me. Yeah. Yeah. I can see him maybe being like, oh, I need to set up a little bit of like an alibi so mm -hmm. that I don't get caught right away. Because if all the 
sex workers that I am seen like driving away with never return mm. that maybe puts attention on me yeah so that can't happen mm-hmm. with all of the ones that I like talk to mm-hmm. but I also don't think with how rash of a decision maker he is that yeah. he put that much thought into it to be honest um, yeah that's true <laughs> and honestly let's not speculate because it seems like there's not really much of an official report on the investigation and on the evidence found yeah I mean, other than like the little bits you've said so yeah it was just hmm. basically they just said or the articles just said yeah later on it was revealed he did have sex with with some of the women um but how that was revealed i don't know so either way he killed them and that's that's bad enough uh, that's bad enough yeah yes so this is the thing i kind of briefly hinted at in the beginning uh the concept in islam of a waste of blood or sinners being a waste of blood i didn't read the quran i'm not sure if this is in the quran but basically in iran's islamic penal code there's this concept and it's really vague it doesn't define who is a sinner who will qualify as being a waste of blood so i'm i'm not sure if it's still like this but what i read from what i understand if you are a waste of blood then it would not be murder but maybe you can argue it's manslaughter Oh, if that makes sense and he was saying that these women were a waste of blood so as like his defense (laughs) yeah yeah so he was not murdering them it was you know not that bad um but fortunately the judge dismissed his claims and he was like thank goodness yeah no you murdered them he charged him with murder and sentenced him to hang oh whoa okay yes um an eye for an eye so well, yeah <laughs> i mean in this case then he yeah i mean i guess it m- makes sense he strangled them right yeah yeah and this is quite like um ironic later on as well but i'll get to that in a bit but so according to forensic documents they determined that saeed did have an antisocial aggressive personality and that he was emotionless so oh. that does yeah sound kind of some kind of you know, antisocial personality disorder. But is he emotionless or is he, like, proud of his actions when he sees his family in the courtroom? No, like, he was proud. He's It's narcissistic, right? He feels great about himself, but he didn't... I think what they mean is maybe they didn't. he didn't have empathy well, in that sense. Well, yeah, that's, that's Or didn't different. feel any guilt or shame. But this was... Yeah. So this, I think, source or this... Um, note I have is from a Google translated or ChatGPT translated Farsi article, so I'm not sure how accurate the wording is in English. Yeah. But yeah, but they did say he had antisocial kind of tendencies, and because I think he did argue, you know, oh that's what that's why he basically said when I saw them they made me mad, like I was overtaken by this sense of madness where I had to kill them, if that makes sense. And otherwise, I couldn't calm this madness. So he argued this kind of insanity in a way. And then they said, no, you are not mad because, yeah. 
he planned it. Like he had victims in advance、mm-hmm. on a list. Exactly, exactly. And this is also something I only saw in some of the machine translated articles I had. But they also mentioned that he was, he did have some.、Um, I'm not sure how to say it. Psychological problems or neurological problems, and he was institutionalized for a little bit for being really aggressive. Okay. And he was under treatment for that for a short time. But anyway, it doesn't really matter because yeah, I don't have a lot more a lot of information on it. Yeah, just just a little note. Okay. So this guy. Of course, after doing all of this, he still had the audacity to say that he didn't want to be called a killer. Oh, what did he want to be called instead? So you want <laughs> you want to have some guesses? Uh, savior, God's chosen, um, second coming of the <laughs> prophet, like Muhammad. Okay, it wasn't that、um, religious. A bit more political, <laughs>、okay. actually. A bit more political. He wanted to be called an anti-street woman activist. Um, that's not activist. Like that's not how <laughs> activism is defined,、no. dude. He's like, I'm not the killer of street women. I'm the anti-street woman activist. Oh fuck you!、He's、that gives just, activism a bad name. He's just so delusional, and of course he still. Okay, this is. I'm going to quote him. Because it just pisses me off so much. But that's kind of like dehumanizing them more, you know, by saying like I didn't kill them because it's not killing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So、um, we're gonna get to this in a bit as well. But they are completely dehumanized. Like they, they're basically being treated as worse than.、Uh, I'll give you another quote in a bit. Sorry.、Mm-hmm. Let me just give you this first, and it's so. Ironic. So he says, since I've given my life for my country, I would like to donate my organs, like my kidneys, to those who are suffering from different illnesses, to those who need them. And then the interviewer asks, so how would you like to die? He says, well, they can put me under to take my organs, and then I'm gone. If they hang me, it's no problem. I know how it happens. I've seen them die. And he's smiling as he says this. And what the fuck is his problem? It's like he just doesn't. He's so cocky about it. And Who wants his organs? I know. Not me. Yeah, and so he he puts off this sort of facade of yeah, you know, I I gave my life for my country. I'm a good guy, and I don't mind. I know how it is if they hang me. Blah blah blah. But in reality, he was not so calm about his、uh, impending death. Because he he believed until the very last second, as he was going to the news, that his supporters in the government they would save him from his execution. Oh, his his support in his the government. Yeah,、mm. yeah, yeah. Yeah.、Mm. So,、mm-hmm. on April eighth, two thousand two, Said screamed in protest as he was baffled and angry that no one was there to save him, and he had to step up. <laughs> And like up up to the news, and his sentence was handed out, and Said was executed by hanging. So this is also just—it's just all very dark. But the documentary shows him before going to the news, kind of. I think I can't remember exactly if it's when he's stepping up or something. 
so when, while he's still alive and then it cuts to a next scene where he's dead and hanging his body hanging and swaying they show it they show it yeah oh that's fucked up yeah <laughs> and they also show kind of the victims pictures as well like the the murder scene pictures but yeah that's okay that's not i mean definitely show the victims yes they should be remembered but don't show them like that like leave them their dignity i mean so that's the thing they kind of show before after so before the sad thing is the before pictures are we only have pictures of the woman um who were arrested so it's their kind of mugshot um it's these black and white photos of the woman so 15 of the women who were killed and we don't have a picture of the 16th one because she was never arrested and then you the the documentary shows that picture and then not always but when they talk about one of the victims also the the crime scene kind of yeah that's not cool it does show yeah i mean it does show you the gravity and the reality so just watch with discretion yeah but still i don't know i feel like these women didn't get a lot of choice in their life and were forced to do a lot of things and then to just be put out there like that i don't know the intention of the documentary was definitely good and they did end up showing it to the 10 year old daughter and no way no yeah (laughs) i think they wanted to watch it and damn she was i think she was happy about it but she also said that she didn't want other people to see it because it would make people think her her mom was a sex worker i think like she kind of implied it would be she shameful in a way and think people would think badly of her mom yeah yeah because it basically revealed that she was a sex worker and it it cuz it doesn't give any of the context like with that um one victim you were talking about who like just had six kids to take care of cuz her husband d- wasn't helping at mm-hmm. all and like she didn't have any other choice like it just puts them in this box and doesn't provide any context well i think the it's only if you view it from a narrow point of view i think because she grew up in this environment everyone who saw it who's you know i don't even think this film was allowed in iran so it was mostly shown to a western audience um and they were i don't think anyone of sound mind thought that these women were shameful or they thought they you know (laughs) chose this life or something yeah um it was more just showing that horrible awful situation they were in and it does a really good job of that they also interview a current at the time of filming sex worker so she doesn't show her face you just see her behind this curtain and she gives you basically the context of her life and most likely what these other women these victims were going through as well so it's if if this is something interesting to you then i think it's worth a watch for sure but it's very very dark but very powerful i remember the like when i watched don't fuck with cats Mm. and how 
unprepared I was for the some of that footage that they used in there. Maybe it'll be better if I'm prepared. I think it's definitely something I want to see. I feel like mm. it's important to see. Yeah, I mean, honestly... I don't know, where is it? Where can you find it? What's it called? It's called And Along Came a Spider. It's on Vimeo, on YouTube. And it's so published by Iran Wire, the media, but also actually created by the founder of this media of Iran Wire. His name is... So if you go, if you watch it on Vimeo, it's actually his account that uploaded it. Oh, his name is Maziar Bahari. Maziar Bahari. Um, let me send it to you. Okay. So I mean, if you're gonna watch the documentary, then so you you're gonna see all this, and it's gonna be a lot more mm-hmm. impactful when you see the people actually say these things. But I do have a few quotes about from the people in the documentary that yeah. just show you how the kind of world these women were living in. Of course, I do want to emphasize that the majority of Iranians did not think like this. They were appalled by the murders. They wanted the killer to be caught. But it's only a few extremists who are the loudest and they have pretty strong opinions and supported him. So, yeah. Okay. Let me let me hear it hit me with it. Okay, so I'll just go through some people, I suppose. Mm. Some quotes from his wife, Fatime. Uh, she says that my feelings for him haven't changed. And I've never mm. known him do anything wrong since we married. He thought they were sinners and should be killed. He didn't know about the legal stuff. He didn't know the person who punishes them should do it legally. He just didn't know that kind of stuff. Right. He's just so such a dumb little idiot. Yeah, he didn't. It's just he just he didn't, didn't think know. things through. Yeah, and he, she says, I feel he did these things because of his illness. He was very compassionate. He never raised his hand to his children. Even when he when they cried, like the children, he would hug them and comfort them with his caresses. I love that she said... He never raised a hand to his children, mm-hmm. not saying he never raised a hand to me. Um, so she did say he didn't beat her <laughs> or he wasn't violent okay. towards her. Um, I just didn't quote it here, but, but yeah. Okay, well, I thought that that was like you did that on purpose because mm, no, <laughs> that would have been very telling. But okay, you yeah. just <laughs> left that out. Yeah, there's just too much to quote otherwise. Um, but she did say, like, so the night when Saeed's image appeared on TV, the children, they were all crying, they were upset, screaming, and they were really affected by this. And she also couldn't, still couldn't believe that her husband committed these murders. Um, but interestingly, she talks about how her son, his, so 14-year-old Ali, uh, was like a corpse for two days. So he didn't leave the house because he was so upset. But after a few days, he did go out. And then when he came back, she saw that he was suddenly feeling much better. And he was happy because he said that when he went outside, people were telling him that he should be proud of what his father did. Whoa, fuck that. Yeah, they say he didn't do anything wrong. And they say he should be proud. So... On that note, let's go to Ali. He, so this is really crazy as well. Like, 
I don't want to spoil too much from the documentary, but this is pretty, pretty. I was shocked when I saw this, but Ali is being interviewed in their house where all the murders took place, and he basically oh, gives the interviewer a tour and oh, reenacts look, where... what his oh, father geez. did. And he's how old? Fourteen. Holy, f- that is. Fucked up. Yeah. So it, it he doesn't reenact them like pretends to kill someone, but he basically says, okay, so this is where they would be standing probably, where they would count the money, and then my dad, he would um, push them down, and then he would strangle them here on this floor. It just, just like that. It was, it's so, so surreal when you watch it. But he mentions that at first he had, he called them childish feelings. He was sad. But then after a while, he realized that his father was a great man. And like a great war hero. And he sacrificed his life for the country. So that when he grew up, so when Ali grows up, he wouldn't, his life wouldn't be ruined by moral corruption. This is so like brainwashy. It is, it is. It's So the maker of the documentary... Um, Bahari, he does mention that, like, he, he thinks about the sun all the time because, and wonders what he's doing now, and the things he said, he says in the documentary, the, the sun, he says it sounds just like the propaganda that these fundamentalists would, um, would say. So, like you said, brainwashed. And, yeah, yeah so Ali also says that, uh, this is like so talking about the woman so if the officials deal with them then that will be great but if it if not there will be more Saeed Hanais in this world there will be more people who will continue what he did since his arrest 10 or 20 people have asked me to continue what my dad was doing no I say let's wait and see oh please tell me that the police has like a watch on him (laughs) I mean yeah, I think everybody just hopes that he escaped that kind of environment by himself because, yeah, it's so sad. That is seriously fucked. Yeah, because you know he his initial reaction, right, was being sad, upset. Yeah, and then like and then the everything that he him, had been like, yeah, yeah, told his entire life, kind of clicked on. Yeah, so it's it's crazy. And of course, Saeed's abusive mother is one of the worst people. Um, so she was not happy with a murder, but not for the reason you might think. I didn't think. <laughs> I, I knew that would be fucked up. So. Yeah. so she says in the interviews, I'm not happy that he's ruined his life for this scum. God knows when I see these girls using public phones, which are for people's convenience. And making dates with young men, I get so angry that if I weren't scared of the society, I grab those girls by their hair and cut them to pieces. These morally corrupt women shouldn't think that now that Saeed's gone, they're free and can be happy. Um, End of quote. (laughs) I mean, I kind of combined a few quotes she said just to give you the gist of her. Yeah, no, I I got... (laughs) I got a good glimpse into her mental state. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, that, 
uh yeah i'm a bit speechless i know that that's how you're gonna feel if you watch the thing the whole documentary just speechless and i also have a quote from his brother jalil um so you can kind of see you know the, the person who grew up in the same same environment as said uh his brother says those he killed were not human beings if they'd been human beings he wouldn't have killed them but frankly a whore oh, doesn't have right. an ounce of humanity that's how it is said is not a, a murderer what? a whore he did not he did no yeah what did that mother do she fucked them up yeah i mean she's probably proud of what she did you just you don't that no you do not call someone a whore yeah it, it's just that's the rhetoric right so um in an in an article where they interviewed the documentarian bahari he did say that so he says hanai didn't kill because he was a fundamentalist there's like a lot of people who are a lot more conservative than hanai than said um and they can't even kill an animal so he just you know so people are aware just because you are a fundamentalist muslim or whatever it doesn't mean you're approve of murder or anything and he says that said first and foremost he was a killer and then the rhetoric created the context for his crimes to happen and for him to be able to justify yeah. them yeah it's yeah no it's i <laughs> It's definitely important to note that fundamentalist beliefs do not a psychopath and serial killer make. Mm -hmm. It's just that they can be good excuses to hide behind. Mm. And I forget the second half of what I was going to say, but it's so often they're like, the reasonings or like the excuses people use for mm. committing these horrifying things, mm. uh, these horrifying acts. And I think that's what gives it a bad rep. Mm. But yeah. at the same time, like just because I don't like I don't agree with these super fundamentalist and like conservative things thoughts like just knowing that some people actually believe these things about other people mm. really messes with me as well yeah it really is the community they're in that the environment they're in where they feel like it's okay to it's do okay these to things. express those thoughts yeah. as well and or that th that those thoughts get like positively reinforced yeah 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 so I just wanted to kind of end the, the note on uh, the victim's family side, go back to the girls. Yes, please. As well as the reality for the woman. So let me just listen to this pronunciation before I say it. One second. So the judge of the case, his name is Hujatul Islam Mansuri. Well done. Thank you. Um he says that, so it's obvious from the victim's clothes that they were poor and they had bad bodily and oral hygiene. Some of them didn't have teeth and it just showed that they lived in such financial and cultural poverty. 
And until you've seen how poverty has seeped deep into people's lives, you can't really understand the depth of the tragedy. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that really captures how that's how it is. A really good that's a really good quote that really hits it. Because it's easy to see like one version of events and like look at these people and you're like Ugh, they don't care about like themselves, they're not taking good care of mm. themselves. But it's just because they literally can't. Like they don't have any opportunities. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, so it also just contrasts so much with Saeed's family and how they have like their lack of compassion and yeah. just unwillingness to even think about these women as humans. Um, yeah. I think I didn't really quote her. So the woman who is an actual sex worker at the time of the filming. Um, so this will be interesting for you to watch, but it's it's so heartbreaking. So she, I guess, gives you an idea of how these women lived, right? And I just remember her saying that um, she had to take drugs, otherwise she won't be able to sleep. And they asked about, you know, do you get scared about being arrested or executed for uh, doing sex work? And then she would say, no, I'm already used to the pain. So if they like whip me, like the first time I heard, now it doesn't hurt anymore. And she would actually not be sad if she was executed because it would put an end to her life, her suffering. And right. yeah, it's, it's just... That, that's heartbreaking. And that's one person, one of so many who just... And even yeah. just one country and there's so many more and mm -hmm. like everywhere yeah. around the entire world. Yeah. So the, the Guardian article that was sort of published along with the documentary also had a quote I took or just like a phrase that encapsulates this pretty well. So it described the world these women were in as a desperate world where they're entrapped by drug addiction, poverty and patriarchal cruelty. Mm. Yeah, and that's that also I think sums it up pretty well if you take out the religious aspects, right? That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So let's just get back real quick to Firuze's 10-year-old daughter, Sahar. She, it's also, I'm sorry, it's going to be sad again. But so the interviewer asked her whether the kids at her school know what happened to her mom. And she says, no, I haven't told them. And when asked why not, she says they'd make fun of me. And for, the interviewer asks, you're embarrassed? And she says, yes. And then uh, when they ask, will you tell people when you grow up? And she says, I'll write a book. I'll be too embarrassed to talk about it. But she basically wants to become a reporter when she grows up. And then now, so now she's collecting like newspaper clippings about the murder. And she wants to basically write a book and write that what her mom did you know, they were like the other women, including her mom, were innocent and basically, yeah, just kind of regain their honor in a way, I guess. Mm -hmm. But it's so it's just so sad. Like her mom was brutally murdered and they live. And she feels like she lives in a place where she feels she has to be ashamed. Yeah. And can't tell people. And can't tell people. Yeah. And has to probably lie about like. 
where her mom is, like, yeah, I mean, what it's... she did, like, all of that. Mm, yeah. So there's still a lot more I don't talk about. So if you can stomach it, do watch the documentary. And just to give you a sneak peek, I guess, of the in-between, there are still so many things. Morality police? Yeah, so there's actually, there's two things I kind of want to, I guess, talk about in the in-between. So one of them is the morality police and the death of, um, recent death of Masa Amini, also known as Gina by her family, and the woman-led uprising that's taking place in Iran or has been taking place since um, Masa Amini's death. Oh, cool. And also, I want to just briefly... Like, I'm going to watch this film, but um, I'm going to do it, I don't know, another day before the in-between. It's called Holy Spider, and it was released last year, I think, and it's about this case, basically. Do you know sort of which point of view it takes? Like, which yes. side, so, so to say? So actually, the makers of this film, they started off wanting to make um, a bit more sort of true crime document documentary-ish thing. But then because they couldn't get enough information, and I think the authorities or the government, they were not... They, they did not want this to be filmed. Mm. So they ended up having going having to make it a bit more fictionalized, but it is, I think, portrayed pretty accurately from what I've read. And um, they follow a female journalist as she basically covers this case from beginning to arrest or post-arrest. And I'll I'll let you know more about it after I watch it. Okay. But it is available on US Netflix. So if you have Netflix and you're in the U.S. or you have a VPN, then you can watch it. Okay, that sounds interesting. Yeah, and it's, it should be a really good film as well. It won Best Actress at the Cannes Festival. Oh. So, yeah. Cool. Well, I'm looking forward to the in-between. It sounds super interesting. Mm, I hope so. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm sorry. I feel like this episode has been a little bit just rushed and me pouring out the information in the limited time that we have. But I think we'll have the in-between to um, talk a bit more about these just shocking <laughs> to us unfathomable um, situations these women are in, circumstances. So, I mean, yeah. you can't encapsulate the entire way of thinking of different groups in a country and that country's history and mm. the way certain groups of people are treated in like under two hours yeah. that's just not possible mm. so don't beat yourself up about <laughs> it yeah so i also wasn't that sure when i was researching for this case whether i should do it because it is not that obscure <laughs> It is um, quite a well-known case, especially because well, of these we films. Well, we did never specify that we only wanted to obscure. That's true. That's true. But it's just that there's other podcasts that have also covered this case in English. But, you know, if you listen to those and you listen to this and you learn something new, then I'm happy, I guess. And also, just because like a lot of people or a lot of podcasts talk about the same thing doesn't mean it's not something that we should still that's true like shouldn't still do because it's important to 
exactly get things like that out there mm. just so people know about the situation in other countries and yeah what there still is to improve mm. on yes exactly especially because of the things we will talk about in the in-between it is very relevant still today and i do think there are some parallels that can be drawn with the u.s to be honest not exactly the same but just women losing an autonomy over their bodies and mm. um just patriarchy i guess but yeah we will talk about it in the next in between so cool if you're interested come back next week in the meantime check out our instagram at my oh, yeah. silk road check out the instagram where we post pictures of Uh, relating to every case Mm -hmm. and if you haven't already check out our other episodes we apologize for the bad quality of the first couple episodes i feel like we've gotten a lot better at that (laughs) i hope we're improving every every bit every day a little bit Um, yes yeah and we'll hopefully see you next time yes hopefully see you next time take care bye bye